0: Welcome, Elizabeth. I'm really excited to have you on the show. You are the CEO of Digni, which is a platform for employers to measure diversity, demographics, and employee engagement. You're also the adjunct professor at UBC Sauter School of Business for Employment Law. Is there anything else that you're working on these days?
1: I generally feel like I've pulled in all of the directions, but that's probably sufficient.
0: Well, welcome. I'm excited to have you on the show. Thank you. I would love to just start off with... How did you end up getting into law and into this space that you're in now? Like what initially mm-hmm. triggered that?
1: My undergraduate is in human and social development. I did a lot of like community-based work. So I worked as like a child care counselor. I worked in substance use, a lot of mental health stuff. And a lot of that is all sort of government-run and unionized work. And really to advance your career, it was really seniority-based, not necessarily skills-based. And I needed to move on. I was honestly just tired of hearing about the terrible things that people do to each other, and I just couldn't listen to it. And we might have become like burnt out and not empathetic anymore. And law had always appealed to me. I loved watching like Law & Order and all those legal shows, which I have to say law school put me right off of. (laughs) Um, Actually, Law & Order is not bad because if you follow like U.S. law, it's pretty accurate, but it's otherwise like it's really annoying. Yeah, so I wanted to go and study law. I was really curious about it. And law school certainly scratched that itch in terms of Mm -hmm. things that I was curious about.
0: And was there anything specifically with moving into law, like in terms of like the impact that you were going to have, or was there any pull to the deeper why?
1: I mean, law is really interesting in a couple of different ways. Like it's really complicated and complex, but at the same time, it's really not. And it's really raw. And it's like, you know, I remember describing this to my godkids as... You know, like what was I what was I doing? What was I studying? And I said, like it's basically the rules to everything and why we have the rules to everything. And there's a really interesting historical component to that, which I find particularly interesting. I really like understanding why something is the way that it is and why those rules are there. So looking at not just the law and the implications of the law and a breach of the law, but also like where does that law come from? What happens if we don't follow it? like some of the, Actually, I, I hated legal ethics and legal theory, but they're actually really, like, to study them is painful. But they're really interesting in terms of why we have the rules that we have and why we need to follow them and how, how we actually create a system. And As much as we might, you know, dislike the system, that we have to have a system. And I'm at a loss to think of a system that would be better. So I think that made it really interesting to think about law and to think about different areas you could go into. I did a lot of research into human rights issues. I did a lot of work around uh, like corporate law and competition law and trusts and a lot. I was generally curious around sort of diversity and inclusion and how. So I think been passionate about um, diversity and inclusion and making sure sort of everybody has a fair go and we recognize everybody equally because it's just seems really morally wrong not to. And I actually often say to our clients, like people come to the diversity and inclusion conversation for three reasons, for the the moral sense of doing good, for the legal obligations requiring you to do so, particularly as an employer and the business case, you know, like people just do better when they're diverse and inclusive. So to me, it seems like like an easy win, but there's a lot of resistance to that. And I find that resistance really interesting. So I kind of combined that undergrad of the, you know, human and social development and why we behave the way that we do with the framework of, you know, why we have to behave a particular way and what some of the benefits are and how it can make us do business better.
0: Absolutely. And I had a sociology degree and definitely dipped my toes into sociology of law and a couple of those things. And my fiance is a lawyer. So I'm around it and have enough of an an understanding. But just going back to where you started in the social workspace. What was that like in terms of managing yourself, like stress and burnout? I know you're working with a lot of different people and just chatting with some of my friends that are in some of those areas. It's, it's a really tough place to be. So I was curious what your experience was like on that end and how you managed
1: I mean, like at the time, like I was in my early 20s, so I had like plenty of energy. I didn't have really any other commitments other than just entertaining myself and working. So I didn't have a lot of the other stresses that I have now or other worries that I have now. So in that way, I think it was a lot easier to manage because I had a lot of other distractions. Like if I thought, you know, the number of hours that I put in at work were nothing compared to what the number of hours that I could spend in my recreational time, right? Like this was in the 2000s where you know, like you could go to disco night at the Commodore ballroom on a Tuesday and, you know, have an amazing, I don't know how old you are, but that might date me a little bit, have an amazing time and go home, you know, at like three or four in the morning on a weekday and then bounce up and go to work the next day. And it was no drama. Like now, if I'm not in bed by nine 30, like I'm cross about it. Like <laughs> I need to go to bed I'm right
0: there with, with you.
1: <laughs> yeah. Like I just, I think because I had a lot of other outlets, it was a lot easier. And my tolerance for that was a lot less. And my like experience and perspective in the world was much narrower, really. Like, I don't think I could work with other people's children now having had my own. And I, I think it would just increase my anxiety and would really, it would just be a bit harder for me to, pal- not that it, that is for other folks, like there's other folks that do it and have children and, and they're okay with it, but it just, it wasn't for me. And I worked with like a lot of very high risk individuals that had had some terrible things happen to them in their, in their little lives. And I don't want to hear about that anymore. I know it happens. I'm not blind to it. And I, like, I think about it with the authority and the power that I have now. And I think about unconscious biases and like who I hire and what I look for in candidates and who I vote for and what you know, programs I think you know, need funding and charities I might support. This is sort of the evolution of my um, experience with those groups.
0: And went backwards a little bit and then shifting forward again. So you, you got into law. What was that transition to getting really hyper-focused into this diversity and inclusion work?
1: Well, I think when I finished law school, I realized that like I didn't have to go down the rabbit hole of working in a firm and becoming like a slave to the pyramid scheme that is a law firm. I didn't have to do that. I could, you know, there was a lot of other things that were more interesting for me and fit my life a lot better. Like I just got married after law school. I wanted to have a different kind of life. I didn't want to have to work eighty hours a week and be like tied to my phone. That was, uh, and not that every you know law firm has that experience. It's probably not fair to paint them all with the same brush, but. That's not what I wanted my career to look like. And I wanted my career to fit my passions. And I really enjoyed, you know, working with diversity and with an inclusive lens and an equitable lens at everything that I did. So I started looking for a job that would allow me to do that. And at the time, there weren't any, like now we have, you know, VP of diversity and inclusion and, you know, equitable people person and all these kinds of things. But none of those jobs were around. So I started doing um, some consulting in that space because I could consult from, from a governance standpoint on how you need to be more diverse and inclusive. I could do a lot of the mediation work around, uh, you know, employees having conflict at work and trying to help resolve that. So there was a lot of sort of intervention work, less on the preventative side. That's really changed over time. Now people are trying to do a lot more preventative work than just the intervention stuff that I had been doing, like looking at return to work plans for like trans folks that needed plans to be able to transition in their workplace and, you know, what their policies needed to work- look like and what the training needed to look like at an executive level. So it really combined both backgrounds beautifully, in my opinion. It just kind of just leads into like how Digny was born. And then so Digny was kind of born from doing that work and realizing that everything that I was doing was really was really reactive. Was it was an intervention rather than taking the pulse of what organizations needed to know and needed to be able to do. And I met with my business partner Adrian, who is a serial entrepreneur, has had a lot of successful exits. He's you know got a tech background, uh, you know computer science background. And we created dignity. So we created the tools. You know, I would do that. This is what I need it to look like. And this is what I need it to measure. And, you know, he created that. And he has a real passion for diversity, equity, and inclusion as well, but didn't have the expertise in DEI to be able to fulfill that. So then we created a tool that helped companies to measure the actual diversity in their organization and then look at employee engagement as well. And then pull up all of the sort of the correlations and all of the intersectionality that exists in there.
0: And for somebody that's listening they hear employee engagement. I think that's a term that gets tossed around more and more. Mm -hmm. What actually is it? Like, how do you define it? And what does that look like?
1: Yeah. So there's a lot of people that sort of measure employee engagement. Like, are you happy at work kind of thing? Which, I mean, it's a nice question. Wouldn't it be lovely if everybody cared how we felt at work? But this is more, you know, we use a science-based proxy. So we use a tool called the all Work Engagement Survey, which is, you know, science-based proxy that's gone through significant academic rigor and peer review around the world and has been issued and completed around the world. And it gives us a sense of what the employee's experience is. So it measures for vigor, for dedication, for absorption, and then gives you an overall engagement score, which really lets you know what people's experience is. And when we use that scale, we can measure that to different industry peers. We can measure it against, like benchmark it against different jurisdictions, but the really interesting thing, and, and this is what a lot of clients that I have do, they say, oh, well, we've measured our engagement, but and like 75% of our workforce is like really highly engaged. So we're really happy. Like we feel like we're doing really well. And we say, like, okay, well, let's just look at that 25% that's not super engaged. And who are those people? So that's where we pull in the diversity metrics. And we actually see, well, actually, when we had this with a couple of clients at, at the end of last year, where literally, like statistically, all of the clients that didn't have that high engagement were all of the women, all of the people of color, and all of the people with disabilities, which is a little bit shocking, right? That's a pretty big deal to have all of those groups, like bar none, all of those groups have much lower engagement than their peers, right? So you need to be able to know that as an organization, because if 25% of your workforce isn't engaged, they're not going to be working to their full potential. They're not contributing to the teams in a good way. You're not going to be having a great place to work and you're certainly not going to be making as much money as you could be, right? So there's a couple of different ways to look at that and to make the compelling argument on why you need to work at that. And if you don't get that data and then continuously measure that data so that you can benchmark it and see like what's working and what's not, then you have some problems, right? We've seen this a lot with people looking at um, hybrid work and return to work plans, where we survey people and a lot of people actually really enjoyed working from home. So we had the group, one of the same clients, but they had a group of the women, the people with disabilities and people of color really liked working from home. They really liked the flexibility. Um, They really liked that, you know, especially for folks with disabilities, if it's a physical disability, you didn't have to commute, right, and that commuting can be really challenging if you have a disability, particularly a physical disability. Women liked it more and they tended to be, you know, we also survey if people have children or if they're caregivers, And they like the flexibility of all of a sudden actually being trusted to work from home, to know that they could, in fact, do their jobs and be at home and, you know, fulfill all of their obligations during a pandemic. And the same thing for people of color. And we've we've started to dial in a little bit more about what's going on there for the BIPOC community. What we're seeing is that they don't experience as many microaggressions because they're not physically around a lot of other folks. They're at home. People don't necessarily know what they look like. They don't experience as much stigma. Now, the solution to getting rid of those microaggressions isn't, well, if you're a person of color, then we're gonna just let you work from home and that'll be fine. That's terrible, but it does let you know that it's something that you need to work on. And in the interim, you have some solutions that can improve those people's work experience. So that to me is really interesting because that helps us to be more preventative, to see what's going on, to see what the landscape is, what people are experiencing, and also who's not in their workplaces. You know, like we see a lot of employers say like, well, you know, when I look around, half the people here are women. So, you know, we're doing really well for gender equity. But when you survey them and you find out what their role is and where they are in the corporate pipeline, they often tend to be in stereotypical roles. They tend to be like in administrative roles or in HR. They're not in like the tech and finance roles. They're not necessarily at the senior leadership table. So if you're You're working to get women in the door, like you're doing that, but they're not advancing their career. So you're not going to see women up in senior leadership or getting up to the board level, which presents its own challenges for other goals that people have. So you're able to look at it really strategically and see where are you in the corporate pipeline? Who's not even applying? Who's not even getting in the door to be able to see where it is that you need to go?
0: And I think that's an interesting point that you just left off with, which is who's actually applying? And a question that popped in my head is how much of what companies are doing in the recruiting process and how they're essentially pitching potential employees. How that's impacting who they're attracting
1: we see a lot of that right like we see a lot of people saying like those people just aren't there like you know indigenous people with tech skills just they don't have them they're not there it's like well first of all that's not true because we do have groups and associations that represent indigenous folks that have tech backgrounds but you also need to look at what some of the barriers are to having folks get into those jobs and get into that education in the first place so when we talk about like inclusive hiring and we look at the strategy of like well If you want to branch out who is working in your team to have more creativity and a lot of companies want to have that, but the sense of wanting to do good, but also to answer some business solutions, right? Like we've been working with a couple of different gaming companies that want to have more diversity in their games and they're seeing that their gamers represent different groups. There's more women, more, you know, of the BIPOC community engaging in their games well, they need to have that represented in the people that are creating those games. So how do they get those people in the door? So you have to look at what inclusive hiring looks like and look at it as a strategy, right? So some of it is creating co-ops and student work, working with the schools to be able to make sure that you're getting the right kind of folks that actually have access. Maybe it's a scholarship program. Maybe it's working with the STEM programs that are trying to increase the representation of different groups in science, technology, engineering, and math, right? Like you need to look at what that pipeline looks like to be able to fulfill it like that and especially for larger employers like we're seeing that a lot um, you know of trying to look at what your strategy is to diversify your workforce because you'll just do better in business if you have a more diverse workforce we know that
0: and so much more creativity mm-hmm. I don't know.
1: yeah I mean, we've got like 15 years worth of business cases that say you know diverse so having that diverse representation and inclusive so actually being able to work well together and people having a sense of belonging diverse and inclusive workplaces, they're like eight times more likely to be agile and innovative than groups, you know, that are much less diverse and much less inclusive. Who doesn't want to be more innovative and agile, particularly now when we need to have different solutions to be able to approach problems a little bit differently. So there's almost an infinite number of reasons of why you'd want to be more diverse and inclusive. And what companies really need is rather than seeing it as this, you know, mount that they have to climb over, realizing you can actually just like take the pulse of what's going on now, and create a strategy that works like in tandem with all of your other business goals. It's not you know, like a brand new separate issue that you need to address. It's all part of the same picture. You just need to integrate it into what your governance looks like and what your strategy looks like.
0: And thank you for saying that last piece because I think that's something, whether it's diversity or inclusion or some other thing in your business, I think a lot of people look at it as like an outside project. Mm it's a big mountain that you have to, to climb and install in the business. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a mistake that a lot of entrepreneurs and founders and just business leaders make instead of looking at it more holistically as how is this already fitting in with our current priorities?
1: Yeah. yeah. I think, you know, for a long time people looked at diversity and inclusion as this like elective topic that if you had, you know, tons of money and you had extra resources, someone could, you know, work on it off the side of their desks. And, that's just not good enough anymore, um, and it's not going to get you the results that you want. And it's not going to make you the company that people want to work for either, right? Like if you look at, you know, large employers, you know, like there's a lot of national law firms and a lot of other, you know, companies outside of that that really work to identify themselves as diverse and inclusive employers because that's what new employees want to have. The turnover rates for the millennial or whatever coming after millennials are, uh, is it Gen Z? I can't remember coming after them, like folks are happy to leave jobs and go to something else. It's not necessarily that old mentality of working somewhere for, you know, five, 10, 15, 20 plus years. They'll move around if they're not happy. So you yeah, have was... to, uh, that that, that, re- that retention, that attraction and retention is becoming really an issue for a lot of employers.
0: Yeah. I actually just yesterday spoke with, his name's Eric Tremundi and he's a keynote speaker and focuses on the future of work and one of the big things that he works with and talks about with a lot of companies is exactly what you just said is that retention rate which is directly connected to employee engagement and how people fit into the jobs that they they have openings for and the point that he made was you can be an accountant at one firm like kpmg or you could be an accountant at another firm still the same job but the culture and the vibe and how you work is so different. I think people are now, yeah, starting to see the, the impacts of it.
1: Yeah, they definitely are. When you think about the, you know, you, you look at HR departments that are hiring for lots of positions. It costs a lot of money when you lose those people, you, you know, you lose the knowledge you lose the time. And then it also impacts your reputation and can impact your brand as well, especially if they're client facing and there's a constant turnover of, of younger folks.
0: Mm -hmm. So just switching gears a little bit for employee engagement, what are you seeing work really well? Like some of the companies that you're working with, what things are working well to really cultivate that and the cultures that are being successful with this? If somebody's listening and they're like, I want to focus more on that. Like, I know that's a priority for us.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Every problem or every issue in a workplace, you know, shares some similarities with others, but that is unique to its own workplace. But there's some general things that can be really helpful. One of the things that I've seen be the most helpful and that, you know, employees of our clients tell me, because they have like a, you know, sort of like a private way of you know of accessing and engaging um, with me for if they have questions about privacy or security or stuff like that, is the accountability and transparency. When companies are really honest about, you know, like why they're hiring dignity and what it is that they want to do, even if it doesn't work, you know, like, so say they might run the survey and they might say, okay, well, there's an issue with this group. So let's run, you know, this pilot program to see if we can address that. And then they tell the staff, like we surveyed because of this, this was the results that we got. We're going to run this pilot project to see if it has an impact. Even if it doesn't, when they report on that to their employees, the employees feel like they're being informed. They feel like they're a part of the process and they see somebody trying to make things better. And that bit of a, of transparency and the accountability of seeing your employer trying to fix things really does a lot for people. When employers just kind of sweep things under the rug, don't address things, um, you know, say, oh, well, you know, we'll get to that or going to deal with that or I'm sorry that you feel that way, you lose people. But it becomes a real relationship builder, right? Of seeing like, well, you know, my employer not really getting it right, and, you know, like shitty things are still happening, but they realize that those things are on the radar and that someone is responsible for those and they're taking steps to try to fix it. That really changes people's experience in the workplace. You know, having having this idea of what, and I talk to people about this all the time, like about what success looks like with a DEI initiative. It's not always an end goal. Diversity, equity, and inclusion, like nobody's done with it. Nobody's like, no, we're finished, perfect, nailed it, we're good. Nobody's doing that. Like It's a journey that's going to be changing and evolving. And it's what you do on that journey that's making the difference. And accountability and transparency are the two biggest pieces. There's a lot of really interesting and creative things that you can do, different ways that you can address issues that are going on in-house. Like Some of the easier ones are looking at training, looking at inclusive hiring practices, uh, what that looks like, changing what, I hate the term mentorship, And I really discourage people from using it because it's, this sounds really patronizing to me. And it's like, well, I'm just going to, I'm going to show you the light. Like mm, I think the light for me is a little bit different than you because there's usually an age disparity. There's a power disparity. I don't like it. I prefer the term sponsorship. Because if you think about it in like a sporting context, you're putting your money behind someone, you believe in them, you want to see them do well and them win. I think that's a better way to do it. And then you're really looking at, not just how I'm going to tell you to do things, but I'm going to sponsor you. I'm going to give you what you need to be able to win and do really well. I like that. It's just language, but it makes a big difference to me. But looking at like, what does sponsorship look like? And how do you get people on board with that? And how do you make sure that everybody, you know, feels like a part of the solution? Because often what happens with DEI initiatives is people think that they're just going to be like strung up and are going to be the ones with their backs against the wall saying, well, you have to change everything that you do. And the reality of it is, you need those people to lead a lot of the DEI initiatives because those folks are your greatest asset. So being able to work with people that are a little bit more reluctant to come to the table is a real success. I do a lot of work with that as well. As I like those groups, those little tough nuts to crack or people that don't really see themselves in DEI, they don't realize the benefits that can come to them. You know, those are, preaching to the choir really only gets you so far, but being able to to shift and nudge some of those other behaviors is where you see a lot of success. And that's where I've seen a lot of clients have a lot of success.
0: Yeah. What's that like when you're working with a tough nut, but you see a shift? What's your experience like when you're in that space?
1: Yeah. I mean, I really like it. Like you're connecting with individuals, right? Like, and you're connecting with people that are really interesting people. They're generally like really successful at higher levels in the company and they want to be able to fix things. But for some reason, they, they don't see for a variety of reasons, they might not see themselves as part of the solution. And when you let people know that, you know, actually there's a lot of benefits to you personally and professionally. And, you know, let me explain to you how that how that's going to work and what that could look like. It's a really, really powerful thing to be able to tap into that and to tap into that sense of empathy and understanding um, and realizing like, you know, you're not in trouble for everything that all the white guys did before you. <laughs> like, that's not your responsibility. But we do have to recognize that some of that stuff has happened and see where it is that we want to go. And the place that we're going to go is going to still benefit you. Like There's still a lot of rewards. You're not being told to go away. Like You're not kicked off the team. Your role is just going to change. And it's going to change for the better. And there's, there's a way for you to see that.
0: And I think it's an exciting, inspiring way to look at it because I think there can be a bit of a, a negative... It carries more weight so people are like oh i don't know so to kind of look at it through that different filter and lens yeah exciting it's like this is cool
1: yeah i mean there's all sorts of different ways that we can look at dei right it's it's very easy to look at it and and have it be a devastating traumatic overwhelming incident when we look at history we look at the things that have happened to to different groups of people that's awful and you know i don't think that we should shy away from that. But I find the approach of bringing everybody to the table and working on all of those individual relationships, is just much more rewarding. And it actually gets people where they want to be. Telling people they're in trouble, it doesn't get people to change their behavior. You're just scaring them away.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting that you say that. So one of the things, so I focus on mental fitness with entrepreneurs, but also their teams. And one of the key concepts is how you motivate yourself or others One can be through what you just shared, like fear, scarcity, which definitely triggers your survivor brain and more instinctual negative emotions. And the other side of your brain is the empathic circuitry. It's your more creative right brain and you motivate yourself through positive emotions. And that's where you have the highest level of success without the cost of happiness because when you're on that self-sabotaging negative survivor brain, you can still get a lot of places with that negative motivation, but it costs you so much more. It's interesting for me to see that because that's something I do on an individual basis with people. But if you scale that out, it's the same thing, but just on a larger scale. Yeah, it is. What's been the biggest challenge for you building Digni?
1: Well, I mean, we self-funded. So from like a practical standpoint, that had its moments had its own rewards as well. Yeah, I think I think just carving out who we are and having the confidence to really do that and to try not to do everything, you know, like the marketplace for this kind of stuff is is getting bigger and there's enormous big goliath sized companies that are stepping into it poorly, but are stepping into it nonetheless. Um so, you know, not being scared off by them and realizing, you know, we do things really well and our clients really identify that, not sort of being intimidated by that has a lot of its own challenges and those you know those get to you like personally as well you know like can be they can be challenging but i, I think that's the biggest one is really just you know like back to ourselves to do to start this company and it's going really well and just making sure that we you know, are able to kind of zoom in and out, especially as, you know, like a lot of that responsibility falls on me as the CEO is to look at like the day-to-day activities of what we're doing and meeting our clients' needs. And then being able to zoom out and say like, okay, well, in a couple of years, where do I want this company to be? And making sure that I'm still taking those kind of steps and still overseeing everything and delivering for clients. I think that's why I said, like, I just, we'll just worry about like dignity and like, you know, the the, the teaching role that I have, because if we throw in anything else, like it's just They'll make me feel sick. (laughs) I don't want to think about it. But yeah, those were some of the biggest challenges.
0: What's helped you on that aspect of zooming in and out? Because I think it's a very crucial skill Mm -hmm. for leaders to have. What's helped you on that end?
1: I'm a big fan of making lists and scheduling. So I will look at my schedule and I will just put in time to do different things. Simple things, you know, like business development days or days where I'm going to, you know, like really focus on, you know, loading up LinkedIn or something like that. And other days where I look at, you know, future planning. So I'll look at, you know, like our financial statements and look at, you know, like where do I need us to be? What clients are we onboarding? Like what does our staffing look like of what I need to have when to be able to make sure that everything is running really smoothly Uh, and also taking the time to make sure, you know, I'm taking advantage of everything that's available to us as well. Like as a female owned tech company in BC, like we have a lot of options of, of, uh, you know, grants and funding things that are available they take a lot of time, um, not only to find, but to like fill out and apply for and to think like, well, I can apply for this, which will give us this, but I have to have the time to do it. Scheduling is a really, it's a massive part of my life. And that's just like my, my work calendar. And then I have, I mean, my teaching calendar is pretty reasonable. Those students aren't that bad. And then like my family, you know, calendar and making sure that everything is being sorted of there. And then remembering that I have to have a life in whatever shape or form that takes these days certainly not going to disco night anymore but i do often reference that did you ever go to disco night at the commodore Ballroom? i did not Oh, you're missing out anyway it was the best time ever hopefully some of your listeners went and know exactly what i'm talking about because yeah it was just the best night there's no no better night than that yeah i'll tell you more about that offline yeah yeah scheduling is really the thing that helps me and then like you mean like i schedule exercise you know like i schedule you know times when this is my window to go and work out and do something to help me to manage stretch. Cause I know exercise is something that really, uh, really works for me. I really like it. Listening to all the nerdy little podcasts that I like, you know, is one of those as well. Yeah. And just trying to, trying to do that, but scheduling to me. And I, I like, I, I do really well with it. Like I would wear a uniform and just like follow calendar alerts all day long, given the opportunity, because it just makes my life a little bit easier. I made my life sound really fun, didn't I? <laughs> well, I, I
0: it's... <laughs> it's so important to be able to get the right things done. Otherwise you're Mm -hmm. in a very reactive state. So being able to map stuff out. And I think it's, it's an ongoing challenge for everybody. Like I've been doing it for such a long time, but it's, I can always learn how to schedule better. And it's Mm -hmm. one of those simple things when somebody's like, okay, how can I be a better leader? It's like, use your calendar better. It's like, I already do that, but there's always this next level.
1: And also like leaving gaps in your calendar too. You know, like I talked about at Digney, we look at not only, you know, who's responding to our surveys, but who's not there. Same thing for your calendar. Like I have to have days where like I just leave them blank. Actually, no days ever like truly blank, but like maybe like half blank, something like that. So I know like, well, that's room for me to do whatever or for like us as a family to go and do Whatever, or to just have like you know a nice time, and trying to turn you know chores. I often do this. We like because my life is so exciting, and I've been my with my wife for so long. But like we'll turn chores into like like a date. Like if we have kids in school or at my mom's house, you know being taken care of. Let's go get our boosters. Like we're getting our boosters this afternoon, and I'm like, well, let's turn that into a date. You know, we can drop off children. We can get a coffee. And we can just go and do this and make this like a nice thing rather than it being like a really unpleasant and just like a chore that you have to race through. I find that really helps me to um, manage stress and feel like I'm enjoying a bit of life.
0: And you get something done at the same time. I, I know. It's
1: honestly like the ticking of getting that done is just
0: it's a hack. fabulous. I just i, know. I was going to put that little one in my back pocket mm. um, just because it's it's so easy to make everything an obligation. Yeah. And then your life is just not of obligations. But it's like no, yeah, I'm a choice, and can do this, and you can do it in a way that feels good, and you enjoy it. So it's not just for you. It's it's something you do with somebody. It's great. Up to this point in your career, what are you most proud of looking back? And then part two to that is like, what are you most excited about when you look forward at the future of where you're going?
1: I'm really proud of what Dignity has become. I'm really proud of coming up with the idea with Adrian and the way that it's taken shape, especially honestly, like when I see those large Goliath companies, who I will not mention by name because that would be advertising that they don't deserve because again, they do a much poorer version of what we do. It's really validating to see those, you know, company like one of those companies was acquired for like a couple hundred billion dollars, like just a year or two ago, to see that, you know, we're working in a space that they're working in. And like, I've worked with some of their clients and they like what we do better. And that is deeply satisfying. I'm very competitive, but I think I still, I really like supporting you know the underdog and supporting you know different folks and really helping people that are different. And I really like winning, and I really feel like Digney has done a lot of winning in that regard. There's a lot of growth that we need to do, and we're and we're on the cusp of that. So if I think about you know like the thing that's coming up that I'm the most looking forward to is, I mean, it's really figuring out how I'm going to do that growing to get those other staff and to balance that without having to necessarily seek out investors. I find seeking out investors is really time consuming. And I would rather just bootstrap it all through work that we can do at Dignity. And so far that's worked and hopefully it keeps working, but I'm really looking forward to how I solve that problem of growing us that much more. And I'm also really excited to like meet some of our staff. I've hired people that I've never met in person.
0: <laughs> oh yeah.
1: I say this to them all the time. I was like, I've no idea how tall you are. I have no idea like what you would drink coffee, like at Starbucks, i you the kind of person that would put fish in a microwave, I've no idea. We've never been in the same room and that really works well for us now, but I'm curious to see what that looks like. I think they actually all really like working from home. I think they much prefer it because they, they have a really flexible schedule. But yeah, creating Digni, having it be what it is, and then figuring out how I'm gonna get Digni to grow and take some of those next steps forward. It's anxiety-inducing, but I am really looking forward to seeing um, how we do that.
0: Yeah. I'm reading the book, The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know if you've ever read it. I read probably annually. Really? Again, it just kind of reframes challenges. It's like, oh, this is a hard challenge. This is going to be really tough. It just kind of like flips it on its head and be like, oh, no, Mm -hmm. that's the way for me to grow. And it's just a a simple, quick read. So I'm, I'm excited to see where things go for you and the company, it sounds like you're yeah, on the cusp or that inflection point of the hockey yeah. stick. So mm-hmm. I'm super excited for you.
1: Thanks, Fife. I'm going to check out that book, The Obstacles Away.
0: He's got some great ones, and a lot of it's based on stoicism. So
1: Yeah, okay.
0: Last question. In the journey of entrepreneurship and business, what's the most important thing that you have to remind yourself again, again, and again, or hear from other people just to kind of keep going and stay on track?
1: I mean, I wouldn't put it on like a pillow or on like a coaster, but it's that stupider people have done riskier things than I'm doing and succeeded at them. So I'll be fine.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much (laughs) for coming on the show. Where, where, where can people find you? Like where can they check you out and find what you're up to?
1: Yeah. So they can find our website on um, digni.com. It's D I G N I -I I.com or they can find me Elizabeth cook with an S on LinkedIn. And uh, I would love to connect with folks. You can have a look at our website to get a sense of what we do. But uh, if anyone wants to chat further or about anything that we've talked about here, you know, they can email me too. It's Elizabeth with an S at digni.com D I G N I -I I.com.
0: Fantastic. And is there a certain size of business that you tend to focus on working with? I didn't actually get specific on that, but yeah. if somebody's listening and they're like, who would be the right fit for you guys?
1: Well, listen, I'm not in the business of turning people away, but to use our software in a meaningful way, you probably want to have around 200 employees and up. So we would work with anyone from maybe even 150. It's just how granular the data can get is, is limited. Um, when it's under 200. And then we work, you know, with, we work with the federal government of Canada that has, you know, thousands and thousands of employees. So those groups, and then we do, you know, consulting and like, you know, DEI audits and helping people with their strategy, because sometimes there's some groundwork they want to do in advance of that. And I'll do training and stuff as well. So basically everybody listening should at some point reach out to me and we could definitely have a meaningful conversation, especially if you went to disco night, then we're like peers yeah. and you'll, we'll have a great it's time.
0: <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining, and it's been a blast.
1: Pleasure's on mine. Thanks, five.